Welcome to the Renegade Movement Performance Podcast. I'm Lex. And I'm Kyle. And today we are welcoming a very special guest, Christina Holland, and we're going to let her go ahead and introduce herself. Uh, Christina, go ahead. Welcome on. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really stoked to be here. Um, my name is Dr. Christina Holland. I am the owner of Inclusive Care, which is a really small private practice specializing in pelvic floor dysfunction in Denver, Colorado. And I I specialize in working with people who have issues with painful sex, people who are leaking when they laugh, jump, cough, or sneeze. I work with a lot of people in the transgender and non-binary population, and I have had my own pelvic floor stuff. So I work with a lot of people who whose stories resonate because they're, they were very similar to mine. Is that how you got into that specialty? Actually, I was interested before I had my own pelvic floor issues. I got into it because I wanted to teach an undergraduate anatomy and physiology class so that I could get my tuition paid for. Um, Cause you know, hashtag student loans. Yep. <laughs> and I ended up kind of on the quest of doing that. I realized that I had to give a teaching demonstration and that it might be, I had picked anatomy and re, uh, sorry, reproductive anatomy and physiology. And I realized it was the first time that these 18 year olds in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was living at the time and going to PT school may have ever heard the word fallopian tubes. And so I, that felt very heavy to me. And I reached out to a bunch of people. And long story short, I ended up at a conference where I first found out that one of the reasons that people might think that they have a libido discrepancy is because they're having painful intercourse and that it could be due be- to pelvic floor muscle dysfunction and basically like trigger points inside the pelvic floor. So I actually thought I wanted to work in peds for the 10 years before I went to PT school and in six months changed my mind. So that was how I originally got into it. That's incredible. I had no idea. That's awesome. How did that go? (laughs) The, The transition from peds to pelvic floor. I mean that and also your teaching demo and everything. Did you get that job? Um, so actually, you know, that's also a funny story in that I did get the job. The feedback I got on my teaching demo was that it sound, it came across as more of a sex ed lecture than a, an anatomy and physiology lab. Um, I didn't hate it, but I didn't. And I, at the same time I got the job, I actually got a, an offer from one of my professors to be a teaching assistant for his, his research. And so I did that instead. Oh, that is awesome. Well, congrats on that. <laughs> yeah, it was great. That's so cool. No wonder you guys linked up. Uh, yeah. I say I, I love peds, but I'm so I'm kind of transitioning between I, I love pediatrics and it's one of those things that I have to have in order to make me feel whole. And then I also love the pelvic health realm. So I'm trying to blend the two and do pediatric GI and incontinence. Um, That's awesome. So I'm super excited for that. But oh my God. I, I had no idea about that background that you have. Yeah, there's there are definitely not enough people who do pediatric pelvic floor stuff. So I think I think that's really awesome that you're interested in it. Yeah. For me, I, I mean, just I realized. Like, go ahead, Kyle. Go ahead. I feel like there's not enough people that do pelvic health stuff in general. Yeah. Regu- for adults, I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's super true. Um, and I think there are even fewer people doing it for peds. I got into it more once I started reading more about pelvic floor dysfunction and like because I'm sitting in this lecture with a bunch, I'm actually surrounded by a bunch of PCPs and OBs and people who prescribe contraception and who are, are basically helping women navigate their reproductive choices. And I'm just thinking like, oh, adult conversations. I kind of forgot what that was like. And I realized that I liked those conversations more. And I, the more research I did, the more I wanted to talk about it 
which by the way, was mortifying to all of my classmates in Atlanta, Georgia. That was like a whole thing. Um, yeah. I go for shock there. Yeah. yeah. So for that same teaching demo, I was practicing the morning before and I have a big picture of a vulva up on the screen and it's before class. And one of my classmates comes in, comes like stands in the doorway, is looking at me, looking at his normal seat, looking at the vulva on the screen, looking at his seat. It's so clear. He's like, God, what do I do with myself? To his credit, he came in and sat down and immediately put his headphones in. But he did come in to the room with the big vulva on the screen. Oh, my God. (laughs) But I feel like that's – so this is a funny story, kind of uh, piggybacking on you. I I took a theater class because I took an elective. And I was like, theater sounds really fun. Let's try it. So on the first day of class, she made us split up into two groups. And we were on one one aisle and the other aisle in the auditorium. And she goes, all right, so this group is going to yell penis. And this group is going to yell vagina. And you all cannot laugh. And it was like, I think it's ridiculous thinking back at it. I'm like, how can we not say those words out loud without laughing? And then now it's like, I think about it now. And I'm like, we need to be saying these more without laughing. (laughs) Like, it's so important. And um, that story just made me think of it. It's like, we think of it as kind of like a taboo topic. But then a lot of people have either dysfunction or um, aren't really familiar with ways that they can get help too. Well, I mean, to the point of you can't even say any kind of anatomy terms related to the pelvic girdle without, you know, this is awkward or we have to awkwardly laugh at it. And it's funny because it's so taboo. It's like, I am so down for a good, that's what she said joke. I I think I, Um, learning how to shut down my inner joking dialogue was something that I had to learn when I started treating pelvic floor, right? Because you, you know, you, you can, you can kind of feel people out, see pun unintended. Now that I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it, I can't help, but help. Out. <laughs> um, but pe- people, <laughs> you have to, you have to find some professionalism too. And it, it makes people more comfortable the more comfortable you are. So I, it used to bother me to be the person pretty much yelling or what feels like yelling vagina and vulva and penis and all of these things. But now I don't even notice it. I don't even notice the weird looks. I just am kind of like, oh, if that's your reaction on the first go around, maybe by the 50th time I say it, you'll be a little <laughs> bit more comfortable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what's interesting to me is – so I'm interested in pelvic health as well, um, which is uh, unique <laughs> for, I mean, obviously there's barriers as a male, right? To enter sure. that realm. Um, but I kind of just like things that are maybe a little bit more unique, taboo, and people don't really know as much about them. So obviously pelvic floor falls in that realm, but also like feet, <laughs> the foot and ankle. I don't know uh, what your experience was, Christina, but. I feel like most people I talk to, their PT programs, like, yeah, here's an ankle and there's some foot bones down there too. And uh, yeah, just do like eversion, inversion strengthening. Um, yeah, that's about, so how I, that's about how I feel about the foot. You're like, oh, name <laughs> yeah. the bones of the foot, like do a minute. I'm like, I, I don't know. You put your thumb somewhere and you move something really fast. And that's about all I can tell you about the foot. <laughs> you hope for a click. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, what's interesting though about that is like, when you think about the primary somatosensory and um, motor cortices, the organization of those is really close to one another. So like on the central sulcus, you have like 
foot, ankle, leg, and also like genitalia is right next to those mm-hmm. and the whole pelvic region. So it's kind of like interesting. And then um, from what I've seen, there's like a connection there in that people might have some like foot and ankle dysfunction or however you want to say that they have things they can work on, right? Like let's not be negative, but, and concurrently might also have pelvic health issues going on. Huh. For sure. I, there are so many, one, there's so many times that I've seen concurrent pelvic health issues. That's why part of when I first started getting into it is I did not intend to do full-time pelvic health. I come from a sports med background. And so I actually intended to, I love ortho and I love high athletic, athletic ortho. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I realized that the more ortho people I was seeing, eventually, the more ortho people I was seeing, the more I, I missed my pelvic floor people. So I kind of shifted to doing full-time pelvic floor. But I got into it because I was like, this is a huge group of muscles that has a really important job, and we just don't talk about it. And I completely ignored it. Yeah. yeah. It's in the center of our body. It's it's stability. And when people leak urine, they're not just leaking urine. They're leaking stability when they're doing heavy lifts and when they're jumping. And um, so that's totally how I got into it. I have a friend who really nerds out about the foot too, Kyle. And she talks about how um, with pr- the pronation that should, the normal pronation that should happen with every step, you're getting some eccentric um, internal rotation from the uh, obturator internus. Yep. And so like, again, another way that the foot and the, and your pelvic floor can certainly be connected. Yeah, I want to say Tracy Sher, um posted a while back a, a link about a study, and basically what the consensus of the study was is that, like if you were barefoot versus wearing some kind of a modern you know shoe that has some decent cushion and stuff to it, um, the max pelvic floor I think it was like an EMG study. So you know again take for what you will EMG studies and the validity of those, but um, the max achievable pelvic floor contraction was like twenty percent better. And it was statistically significant and all those things with bare feet versus with shoes on. So yeah. there's certainly a connection there. I don't think um, I saw that Mechanically, one. you know, the nervous system, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Um, and then the function that they do, right? So like walking or running, you're supposed to have some pronation, as you were talking about, Christina, which then corresponds to mechanically some internal rotation and some eccentric control of doctor internus and other rotators in the hip, right? And also probably your weight is shifting from a higher to a lower position. So gravity, right? So your pelvic floor should then be kind of controlling that pressure increase probably with an eccentric type contraction, right? So like, I don't know. I'm just a nerd. I love it. You love it. Like you were saying, it's a huge piece of the puzzle. And like how many years have people been talking about core or your core, tighten your core. And you're like, oh. Yeah, your six pack abs. Well, that's not your core. Like it is, but it isn't. Like so. Now, it's just your high level background for athletes, high level athletes. Can we talk about how you? Obviously, an athlete needs to have that core stability. So, if someone were to come see you, um, what what would they expect as a high level athlete as far as pelvic floor dysfunction goes? Like, what do you typically see? Um, and what does that treatment typically look like? Sure. So um, most high-level athletes, particularly if they've never had a vaginal delivery or, or have never been pregnant, don't need Kegels. Like, right, that's not the answer. Pelvic floor muscle contractions, they're already doing so much more more than they can do max voluntary contraction-wise when they're lifting heavy weights. Um, so I don't do that. Normally what I do 
is I will check and I often find that people are oh, have overactive pelvic floors. So mm-hmm. they're contracting when they don't need it. They're not, they're not, their tension to task is not appropriate. So they think about, you think about foam rolling the rest of your body. You think about stretching the rest of your body. You think about um, relaxing an eccentric load in the rest of your muscles, but you don't necessarily think about it with pelvic floor. So there's some amount of figuring out the eccentric load piece and making sure that coordination wise people can are able to do it. Um, and then, and that I normally do that with an internal exam if they're open to it, because it's the most direct way for me to cue them. And then, sure. um, the, the thing, I don't think that people who do, who treat pelvic floor dysfunction have to be able to do internal stuff or even want to do internal stuff. There's a lot of external stuff you can do. I do mm-hmm. think sometimes though, it's like trying to figure out how to get people to QT, how to QTA without being able to look at it or touch it. Um, so I think it's useful to be able to have some type of referral if you're doing things externally and just get kind of stuck. Um, so then after that, it's mostly just strategy adaptation. So my office does not currently have heavy weights, uh, just the building I'm in, it wouldn't work. Um, but with videos and, cueing based on the video and then giving people a shot, go out in your world, go give it a shot and let me come back and let me know how it went. So that's typically what that looks like. Yep. So independence too. So that's really good anyway. So, I mean, um, I feel like we see, cause oftentimes people talk about leaking with jumping, especially jumping. And I just had one of my friends reach out and say that she's actually leaking while she rides her horse. Which was interesting to me. Yeah. So same demand, but different kind of. Exactly. And I was thinking about our current world and how, you know, we're not necessarily seeing people in person. So it kind of mitigates that, that need for the internal exam. Are you finding that you're able to still, or do you still, um, do your full evaluation online? And are you finding that it's okay to do that telehealth aspect without that internal exam? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I am always really hesitant to do internal exams if I don't have to anyway, because I think that there's a huge prevalence of trauma and there are certainly people who just don't do well with internal exams, don't want them. I've had a couple of people schedule, honestly, they were, we were kind of talking and they were talking about scheduling before the pandemic. And then once I switched everything to telehealth, they were like, okay, I'm ready now, basically, because they just didn't want to do an internal exam and didn't want to tell me they didn't want to do it. Um, So that was really interesting. I didn't expect that, Um, especially because I feel like I tell people all the time, like, we do not have to do an internal exam. To me, it is the most direct way I can get that information, but it is certainly not the only way. Um, So yeah, I definitely think people can do things via telehealth, especially with high level stuff, um, high level athletics and leaking in particular. I think it's a little bit harder if you're coming if people are coming in for, you know, dyspareunia, painful intercourse, vulvodynia, those types of things. It's I I think the internal exam or some type of visual exam is a little bit more relevant, but for leaking and athletics, I don't it's not necessary. Amen. I love it. Yeah, I mean there's so many like so I would consider myself an interested party by no means an expert I'm just starting to get my toes wet right Mm -hmm. uh and so same there's been quite a few and part of my interest too like not only from the standpoint of it's unique and like nobody really knows that much or wants to work with it so then therefore people need to be you know into that field so that people can get help that they need in that area but like there are so many ortho cases that come in that are you know, low back pain or like even in the cervical, like neck region, Mm -hmm. um, 
I find that there's a high prevalence of kind of pelvic floor dysfunction. And like we were talking about earlier, like leaking performance in addition to fluid, um, creating a mechanical fault somewhere else. And then they have some kind of mechanical diagnosis. They get referred to an outpatient ortho clinic and then you're working with them and they get like, you know, 60% better, 70%, like a hundred, whatever. They don't quite get all the way there. And that's the last key piece that you're kind of missing. So I started like looking into it more and with just like breathing and pressurization strategies added that kind of a focus added to traditional rehab exercises. I feel like it wasn't, again, like you were saying, like, I feel like there's some level of there needs to be more thorough evaluation, just like anything else in life. But I feel like I was able to help a lot of people just by working on breathing and stuff. And clearly I wasn't doing internal exams then or now. So for people who are listening that are considering getting pelvic health help, uh, and might be a little bit hesitant, I would definitely say go for it. And obviously you're going to have options with Christina or any other provider. Like nobody's going to force yeah. you to do an internal exam. If they do run and report the authorities, like <laughs> run away. So, but my point being that there's a lot that you can do just with like breathing pressurization strategies and external work, like Christina was saying, and you don't have to go internal. Yeah, for sure. Now, I, I just think ahead. it takes the willingness. It, it, it does take a little bit on the on the person who's seeking help standpoint, you have to be willing and and you are totally allowed. And I always try and encourage people to know that you're allowed to say, I don't really want to do that. Or I don't want to start with that. Or can I get the information so I can, and then like sleep on it and decide, you know, nothing that we're doing has to be decided right now, right this minute. There's, it's always a conversation. And so just know that you're in charge. And so I say that my patients kind of laugh. They're like, I'm not in charge. You're the expert. I'm like, no, no, you're in charge. I want you to make, I want to give you as much information as you are open to receiving so you can make good decisions for you. Because I, I know a lot about pelvic floor stuff, but I am not the expert of what you are experiencing in your body. So we need to work together because you have a big piece of the puzzle that I know nothing about unless you tell me. Yeah. I mean, like to me, that's almost a, what you're saying is awesome. But what I'm going to say is like, it's a sad revelation that people like when you try to empower them and you're like, look, here is even on like an exercise, right? Like, here's why I'm having you do it. Here's how it probably is going to help you. And this is my rationale behind it. However, it's up to you for like your home exercise program or whatever we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. It's the ball is in your court. I can't want it more than you. Like it's you're you are empowered to make your own decisions about what you do and do not do. And people are just like dumbfounded. Like, wait, what are you talking about? And to me, it's almost a little sad when that happens, because it just speaks to the state of our healthcare in this country. Yeah. Like you are in control. Yeah. To, to be coming to us and we're like the first provider in some of these people, 50, 60, 70 years old. And we're the first provider to like put the ball in their court and give them options and power and choice rather than be like, here's your pills, take them three times a week and see you around. Not to, you know, speak badly of any other professions, but it's just kind of almost saddening to me at some points. Well, like, no, 100% you know, you get that person that says to you, Hey, I, every time I do double unders, I pee or you see them, they leak, you know, and they'll tell their friend like, Oh, it's funny. Like I've had a kid, so I must have to leak. And that's like an expectation. It's almost like they, they wait for it to happen because they're like, well, I'm gonna have a child. So now I just have to expect that I'm going to leak. And no one is ever there to say like, wait, but you don't have to. Wait a minute. So culture has normalized leaking, say, especially yes. after pregnancy, so bad yes. that I saw the other day, depends active wear, and they're oh, marketing towards mm-hmm. younger females, yes. even who are not 
postpartum. Yes. I and know. I was like, awful. It's just, it's so sad because there's help. It, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. Um, I, I guess that this is the thing, right, that happens across the board. When when issues start to get some limelight, there is a product to, to quote, solve the problem. Um, sure. But how I, – I just wish – I honestly wish that Poise would and Depends would just work with a pelvic floor physical therapist because there are, are absolutely circumstances. I don't want to villainize those – companies or their products because those products can be hugely helpful to people who are leaking. Um, but I also want people to know that it is not, it doesn't have to end there, right? You, there's so much more that can be done so that you don't have to wear those products. And so you, and so you're not using those products. If you're leaking at 24 or 25 or 30, you're looking at how much, how many more years of leaking and using those products that during a time, for something that could have been prevented or treated. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So back to the foot, butt related. <laughs> uh, like orthotics, same idea, right? So orthotics to me, like, I don't know much about those. And I typically try to stay away from this best I can. Um, but at the same rate, the same idea is that it depends, right? Or the poise pads, whatever we're talking about uh, to help with leaking as an external product. Orthotics are sometimes indicated for people, right? Right. But it's like a cast for your foot. Like you don't put a cast on a broken bone in your arm or something and wear it for the rest of your life. The same mm-hmm. thing with an orthotic. You right. don't slip that in your shoe and just wear it for the next four decades. Although people come to the clinic saying that and that's right. their experience. Right. But same thing with the depends of the voice pads or what we're talking about. Like they could certainly be, as Christina was saying, like a great adjunct. Right. Right. But let's look for more long-term solutions. Now, I feel like we've had a few people reach out and like we just said, we're getting our feet wet in this, you know, like pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. I know. I, I was just thinking when you said it earlier too, like dipping your toes in, I'm like, it's toes because they're Here next they're next to the genitals on the central sulcus. That's why. <laughs> That's exactly why. Oh man. So we get a lot of people or we've had at least three or four that say like, you know, can you speak more on breathing or this, the other end of the spectrum too. So I guess it's two questions in one or two comments in one uh, for you to elaborate on, if you will. Uh, They also want to know and they want to have hope. So, you know, when someone is leaking, like I said, they, they talk to their friend about it and they laugh about it. And, you know, that might be something that's how they cope with it. But I feel like the people that have reached out to me, they it's basically, they feel horrible. They feel Mm -hmm. horrible about it. They don't want to laugh about it. Um, It's just very cumbersome. And the conversation is very taboo and no one really wants to talk about it. So do you want to kind of elaborate on, you know, the hope that people can and should have for that type of situation? Yeah, I would love to. Um, I am a hope dealer in this particular realm in that I have seen people do so extraordinarily well with so few visits. If people come in to see me, whether it's virtually or in person, and they are leaking and they don't have any pain, they normally stop leaking in as few as four visits, usually less. It's between two and six visits is is the, the normal number of times I see people who are just leaking without any pain. Um, which when you're looking at six visits relative to, again, what, 50 years of your life, um, is such a small number. And so that's part of why I get so frustrated that people put up with it for so long. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, why keep dealing with it? Two to six visits and it's gone. Yeah. 
or, and or I, substantially better, right? I mean, right. that's awesome. To the point where maybe, you know, and, and sometimes that takes time. I, that's not two, that's not two and two to six visits in two to six weeks, right? It takes a little bit more time than that. Um, but just depending on what people have going on, oftentimes we see pretty significant improvements in one or two visits, even if it's not fully gone. So yes, if you are leaking, please know that it is treatable and it can be different and you don't have to leak when you pee, uh, or sorry, you might have to leak when you pee. You don't have to leak when you, <laughs> when you laugh or jump. Yes. Uh, so certainly, certainly to that, to that, is that enough hope? Do you want Absolutely. more hope? I have, I have yeah. so much. I mean, that- <laughs> she's got bottles. I got bottles. <laughs> I mean, you can keep dealing hope. That is amazing. No, I, I think that it's one of those things that it, it makes me mad. It does, like you said, it makes me so angry. And I think we were sitting in class in physical therapy school, and someone was. We had a guest presenter on pelvic health, and the first video she played was the video, the CrossFit video. Mm. about where the woman was um, leaking while I wanted, what was she doing double unders and it was, it was I mean again right like you can like vilify anything yeah um, but I guess prop, go ahead Lex I'll, I won't explain no, go ahead. Point, sorry no you're good well understanding it, it, it's, it's, it's normalizing it yeah and it's just like everyone thinks that it's normal because it's so prevalent but it's like no it's not common and, but not normal yeah common but yeah. not normal yeah. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's now something we're saying. And unfortunately, I think it's having a side effect of um, people then are feeling pathologized. Mm-hmm. So it's like gone from being normal to now being pathologized. And it makes people that also makes people feel bad. I think what I have what I have adopted saying is um, common, but not inevitable. So uh, this, it's leaking postpartumly or leaking during high level athletics is not an, an inevitability an inevitability. Uh, and it's often treatable if that's important to you. So I try really hard not to, um, not to place value in treatment or value in outcomes for folks that don't tell me that they have value in those outcomes. So there are certainly people who leak and that is the least of their worries and they would rather um, wear the, the pads every once in a while, you know, and it depends on how much they're leaking and things like that. And I just want to say that that's also fine, right? It's your body. Yeah. It's your choice. You could do with it whatever you want, um, but it is not inevitable. And if it bo- is bothersome to you, there, there are treatments that are pretty non-invasive and don't take that long and aren't that expensive. I'm 300% stealing that. I know. I love that. That is so good. Can we spread that like wildfire? Please. I'm definitely going to use that not only for like leakage and pelvic floor dysfunction stuff, but like definitely for any diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Non-pathologizing, like no nocebic language, common, but not inevitable. And like, I'm not big on like language and, you know, certain things, but when it matters, it matters. Right. So like that matters. And I've actually been thinking about that. Like when you say to somebody, oh, it's common, but not normal for anything, whether you're talking about pelvic floor dysfunction, leaking, whatever, or some other thing, like, what do you mean? How else do I say this? Yeah. So you're, so you're saying I'm abnormal. Well, it's like like that question you always get when you talk about pain science and then they're like, wait, so it's in my head. And you're like, no, 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 it's not in your head. That's not what I'm saying. And then you have to backtrack a little bit and like, no, (laughs) but, um, but not inevitable. I know. I absolutely love that. It's so good. Um, so I kind of want to jump into uh, low back pain. Whoa. Okay. Well, because 
so when you have, so oftentimes when you have that low back pain, you know, a lot of people that we treat are postpartum or may become pregnant in the future or whatever, but long story short, anybody can have low back pain. It's not just women, not just, you know, men, but how does the pelvic floor relate to low back pain? And if you were to have low back pain and feel almost better, but not quite get there, um, how would the pelvic health realm potentially help that person? Do you feel like that's the case often? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, So in the research, we know that, so the, the research was looking at cis women and cis men. So women who were identified women at birth and live their adult lives as women and similar, the same thing for men. And mm-hmm. they um, they found that in women with low back pain, 65% of them also had pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And then for men, the number was significantly lower. Um, I think it was in the 30s, but I would have to brush up on that. But I just was blown away by the idea that in this study, the N was in the, was in the 2000 people range that 65% of them had pelvic floor dysfunction. And I got 30 minutes on pelvic floor lecture when I was in PT school. Right. And no interventions. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) That is 110% the truth. And I feel like that's why during we, we sat there and we were like, we feel like we're missing an entire part of the body. How do you do an evaluation of the entire human when you don't know everything about that system. And we're not and even willing to ask questions that might hint at the answer. Back to that yes. part, the earlier conversation about taboo topics and feeling awkward. Yes. Yes. Like our, yes. It's just like that. the low back pain patient. I shouldn't say that patient with low back pain comes in and they say, um, you know, I, I have low back pain. It's, it's been happening for, you know, 10 years, whatever. You know, the first questions that we typically ask are, you know, do you have subtle paresthesia? Do you, or do you leak? Or do you have any types of incontinence what, and whatnot? And I feel like sometimes oh, yeah. those questions like are- red flag screening Yeah, questions red flag about. screening yeah. questions. And like sometimes I, I feel like it's scoffed at, um, but it's like, no, those are super important because- So that's another area. Just, I'm glad you brought that up, Lex. Like that's another area when you're practicing uh, as a young provider in an outpatient ortho clinic. I was like, okay, this person said yes to that question. So like you've been trained and conditioned to be like, it's a red flag. Send them to the ER. They're dying. Like, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. But then you have to kind of, you know, like anything else, critically appraise that and think about it and put it back into the context of the person in front of you and the situation they're in. And then a lot of people I noticed, you know, more frequently than um, cauda equina syndrome was, you know, some kind of pelvic floor dysfunction and urinary incontinence. Way more and, common. Uh, Way more yeah. common. But yes. so to Lex, yeah, to Lex's point though, like you're taught to ask that question in school and it's a red flag, like a, if yes, then emergency type thing. Yeah. But yeah, meanwhile, you... the predominant majority of people that you're seeing, they're going to answer yes to that question and throw up your red flag. Yeah. Don't need to have emergency care. Yeah. They yeah. Public health. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta ask, is that new with the yes. onset around the onset of your low back pain or has that been going on for a while? Because that'll exactly. give you lots of information. Exactly. Um, but to your to your question about like how are they connected, they work really closely together, right? So the core is a can, and it involves yes. the pelvic floor, it involves the transverse abdominis, it involves the diaphragm, and it involves the multifidi. So um, people who have low back pain, we often see whether they have you know decreased lumbopelvic stability and pressure management issues because of the low back pain or they cause the low back pain, right? Chicken or egg situation, uns- uncertain. 
Um, but a lot of people who have low back pain have issues with lumbopelvic stability and they have inefficiencies in that whole core system. So it makes a lot of sense that if you're treating some of the other parts, but you're not treating the pelvic floor, that you're going to be missing some percentage of gains that people can make. So they might get 70% better, you know, 75% better, whatever. Yes. That was like one of the better slash best <laughs> truncated ex- explanations of how those things are related that I've Yeah, that was awesome. I, it probably, a rock star. It's probably because you, you all already have context. I didn't have to. It wasn't the full explanation. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. But but give yourself some credit. So for people who are listening that maybe aren't aware of, like uh, Christina mentioned, the CAN um, model of kind of conceptualizing core stabilization and stuff, which is what I typically use too because it's convenient and it works and it makes good sense. So like the CAN would be your, abdo- your abdomen, right? And you have uh, a kind of continuous wall around the outside just like a CAN does. And you have a top and a bottom, a lid and a, and a bottom of the CAN. And so if you were to imagine you took a, a Coke can or a beer can, whatever time it is, and <laughs> you were to squeeze that right from the sides, the front, the back, or the top or the bottom, you would create more pressure inside that can, even if you weren't aware of it, depending on how hard you squeeze, right? And when we're talking about stabilizing the core, if you're squeezing, you're creating pressure, that's now pressure that can push against the spine and uh, to some extent your hips and, and your pelvis and other things. And that creates stability for us. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have the bottom of that can working cohesively with the rest of it, then uh, what Christina was saying earlier, right, about leaking not only urine but or other contents, but also pressure and performance. And, like, yeah, that's yeah, exactly what I was going to take it. So, like Christina would probably agree that if you get that system working optimally, your performance will improve. Gains. <laughs> gains, yeah. CTLDR, pelvic floor, gains. That's it. <laughs> end episode no breathe, and like drop <laughs> con- breathe consider your pelvic floor get gains so i feel That's like amazing what we've been talking about up to now is like areas that lex and i are again we're not experts but we're tangentially um aware of and can you know maybe provide some um advice on and help people a little bit right but i want to take a foray if you will into um, the other side of your practice, dealing with um, sexuality, pleasure, um, what is kind of that look like for you as far as um, business goes and how you're helping people with that? Um, and any advice or anything you want to talk about, I guess. I'll leave it open. Just to because it is so taboo, it's just it's so important to talk about. Yeah. So all the fire that we just got about leaking and how people don't have to put up with that shit is the same way I feel about the sexuality side of it. So though the muscles that run from the front to your back, from the front to the back of your pelvis, your pelvic floor run around your urethra, vagina and rectum, if those are the parts that you have, and they play a role in the strength and stability aspect that we've discussed, they play a role in bladder and bowel, which we've discussed, to some extent, not only in, you know, maintaining continence, but also being able to void completely, which is hugely important for our systems to be working effectively. Um, If you want to talk about pediatric pelvic floor, like that's, that's what you're talking about. Um, and then they also play a role in sexual function. So to talk about two of the three of those functions, but not take some type of information about what is happening in the bedroom and whether or not people are happy with how it's going, in my opinion, is negligent. Um, 
it is something that even if you're not comfortable discussing sexuality, one, I think people need to do some amount of work around like, okay, why is this so uncomfortable to me? I'm a medical provider. Why can I not ask this question? Um, and not that's not going to be appropriate in every single situation. And, you know, all, all of this has nuance, but I think it's sure. worth asking ourselves the questions and doing the work around that. Um, and know that, you know, this is a real thing and you should be able to have a referral for someone if they feel comfortable enough with you that they answer that question honestly and, and are asking for help. So same amount of fire. It, it It's really important to me that we talk about sex and sexuality and, um, and how it's, there's so much we can do with the pelvic floor. Yeah. So do you know, um, this is maybe a long time ago for us now, I guess, or for a lot of people, or maybe not some other people listening to this never heard, but like, uh, in anatomy and physiology or any kind of related courses, they talk about like form follows function and function follows form. And so then you can, you know, apply that to any part or system of the body you want. Well, when you think of something like a clitoris, like what is its function? It has, to my knowledge, one function. Yeah, pleasure. It's the best. It is the best form in the whole yeah. world, I think, actually, because it just has the one function. It's lovely. Um, and it's, it's shaped differently than, um, than people think, right? So here's the other thing. is the same way that we want people to know about that you don't have to leak when you after you have a kid um, or you don't have to leak when you do double unders. I also want people to know that sexuality looks very different for lots of different people and it should be fun. Like it is in our, it's in our nature. It's we developed to want to have sex so that we could procreate and have, make other humans, right? That's not supposed to be a bad time. So if it's a bad time for you, it's not because you're broken or again, it's not, it's not abnormal, but it is also not inevitable. And there are things you can do about it. So um, you get blood flow to the pelvic floor muscles, which is going to be super important to arousal. But there's there's just this conversation is so deep and I could talk about it for forever because there's just so little that pe- that the general populace knows about the sexuality and, ha- and the sexual arousal cycle and how it works in people who have vulvas that um, to talk about all the things that might be abnormal relies on talking about all the things that are completely normal and that could take a million hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, not only like you were saying, like it's a huge piece of the puzzle and you can't just talk about performance and stability and function and pain without talking about, you know, the tertiary function of the pelvic floor uh, related sexual function. Like not only can you not just leave that piece out and it's negligent to do so, like you were saying, but like, it ties into the health of your pelvic floor and mental health and so many other things. So like, I just feel like people are so lucky to get to see you. That's very sweet. Yeah. We're kind of crushing a little bit right now, but it's like, it just, you know, sometimes, well, I've always been a fan. I, you know, (laughs) this is my first experience. I just feel like there I'm are very <laughs> my face is hot. Um, there are very few people who I would send someone to and feel 110% confident they are going to look at that person and take the entire person into account and address every single issue. And not only, like you said, you don't want to pathologize them. You want to make sure that you know they have the choice and it's they're empowered. And I just feel like 
like you're one of those people. Like I would send anyone to you just because you sit like everything you're saying is just you're taking everything into consideration and you're not saying like, hey, look, you have a problem. It's like, hey, look, how can we help you? How can I make your life better? Because this shouldn't suck. And it's just like all of the 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 knowledge bombs that you have been dropping about like this isn't something that you have to deal with forever. And it's just, it's so empowering. I find that across the board. So people who practice public health or so public good. health practitioners, whatever, I find are very knowledgeable, are subject matter experts, but also are knowledgeable about many other things not specific to public health and are very empathetic and caring individuals. Yes. So like I almost, do you know, Christina, like, and not to, you know, again, I feel like we vilify and like downtrodden a lot of things, but do you know how within any profession, there's going to be people who are like super awesome at their job. And then, you know, some kind of, it's a bell curve, right? Right. There's details and there's like a middle and, and so there's variation there. Um, and I feel like with physical therapy, sometimes people are like, who should I go to? Or I came from this person and you're like holding your breath, like, okay, well, <laughs> did they get a good therapist or not? Mm-hmm. Whatever good means. Right. But, um, Anyway, my point being, I feel like people who are in the public health arena are typically at the uh, 95th plus percentile of the bell curve. I mean, those are my people, so I can't help but agree with you. (laughs) I I count y'all among them. Um, Yeah, I think some of it is it it takes a certain skill set to get into public health because you see a lot lot of hard shit all the time. Um, Again, going back to a lot of that trauma stuff that is way more prevalent than anyone likes to talk about. and also just being comfortable with some of the uncomfortable topics. I, you know, it's not something that I taught myself. It's something that I, that's a personality trait of mine is I used to call it my secret superpower was talking about uncomfortable things and just really being totally unaffected by it, uh, which mm-hmm. has been great. I hope I'm using it for good and not for evil. <laughs> well, absolutely. I'm sure you are. <laughs> oh my God. Um, oh, I just can't get over it. What were you were going to say something? Thanks. Oh, just that. Uh, well, one, I'm really glad there's no video because I am absolutely blushing. I super appreciate y'all <laughs> saying that. Um, and and also know that, um, you know, there certainly are pelvic floor physical therapists, some that are, are better at certain things than others. And sometimes where I, I do see as an honest commentary, people drop the ball is in athletics um, and mm-hmm. just stressing the system enough so that they're not just prescribing Kegels for every single pelvic floor dysfunction and every type of leaking. So just, you know, for a well-rounded commentary on how amazing pelvic floor therapists generally are. Yes. that That's one of the things that I find really hard to get by only because Kegels don't help everything. Mm-hmm. And um, one of our, we had one of our friends on Allie, uh, Allie Wells. She also practices pelvic health and we got into that topic too. Like, you can't just prescribe Kegels and expect someone to get better. That may, that may actually make them worse mm-hmm. in the long run. Um, one thing that you posted about it, I want to say it was today. And I, don't, I just want to, just the last topic, if you don't mind. Now she's time. talking you. No, I, I just, <laughs> I'm here for so it. It's so I'm going to mention it because I always hear, and we'll talk about your sister, Kyle, you know, when you go to the doctor, when you're pregnant, we don't really ever get that, you can exercise like this topic. It's always just kind of left, like you had said, I think it was a couple of days ago, the wild, wild west. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I want to know. If, Don't pick that up. It's over 20 pounds. 
<laughs> yeah. Right. So I kind of want to get into that topic just a little bit only because, you know, I want to one, take advantage of this time talking to you because you're incredible, but two, because it's so, we, we don't talk about that enough and there's not enough, um, you know, obviously there's research out there and we know a lot of things that we can do, but I don't think enough people know that pregnancy and exercise, they don't have to be mutually exclusive things. No. You can exercise when you are pregnant. <laughs> and you should. You should yes. exercise when you're pregnant. First of all, being a parent is a really physical job. I don't I just really don't understand the rationale behind, okay, well, you're pregnant and we trust you to be strong enough to grow a human, but we don't trust you enough to take your own garbage out because it weighs too much. That doesn't make any sense to me. I trust you to grow and deliver a 10-pound baby probably out of your vagina, but I don't trust you to pick up a like 40-pound dumbbell. It doesn't make any sense. But as soon as um, that child's out, you're going to be carrying it on your hip. Right, exactly. <laughs> and you're picking up the stupid uh, car seat, which in and of itself weighs 40 pounds, and then you add the baby into it, which is growing. So yeah, um, yeah it doesn't really it's, – it's not logical. Um, and there are huge benefits to exercising while pregnant. So um, in in terms of pregnancy specifically, they, we've seen that it lowers the incidence of gestational diabetes. It lowers the incidence of preeclampsia. It lowers the incidence of having a C-section, right? None of that is is prescriptive, um, but it can. it's not a causation sort of situation, but it can absolutely help with correlation um, and decreasing the incidence of those things right in the general population. And it's good for your heart. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your sleep. It's good for your sense of community. Um, Big fan of exercise during pregnancy. There are, of course, things that you have to pay attention to and you should talk to your doctor and all of that. Um, But people should exercise while pregnant. Here's the other. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The flip flip side of that is sometimes people do really – a lot of exercise in ways yeah. that might not support their long-term goals. So the conversation that we're having about exercise during pregnancy, it, the, the number one question is, is and should be, what are your goals? So managing people's expectations, because I do think, especially in our more athletic populations, what I do often see is that people are stoked to be exercising, which I'm also stoked about, but they are not necessarily taking their long-term goals into consideration um, and are trying to do PRs and are trying to get up onto rings and onto ropes and doing handstands and like doing things that may not, that may just have more risk, particularly now that your body is changing at such a rapid pace um, in ways you can't necessarily predict. Yes. That's, and that's something that I've, I had a friend actually reach out and she had said, you know, this it's her second pregnancy. And she had said, I feel she was uncomfortable with the way that her body was changing and her strength and that her strength was for, for, in her terms, her strength was, you know, down. She didn't feel as strong and she felt a lot. Um, her term I think was weaker than she did during her first pregnancy. And, um, I think it's hard when you're really, when you're in that CrossFit athletic realm, whether you're, you know, power lifter or whatever you are, um, it's hard to, to not feel like you're losing performance or you aren't as strong as you quote unquote would, would have been. But at the same rate, it's like risk first reward. And mm-hmm. what, like what you said, what are your goals? Well, and- even beyond that though, Lex, like performance, yes. And like, it, to me, it all ties into identity, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So like yes. what do I besides your performance and that's who you yes. are, 
also what is your physical appearance and that's who you are mm-hmm. which obviously rapidly changes not controllably so when you are pregnant so I, I mean i can sympathize with it exactly yeah it's like i would feel the same way i feel like if you ask most people who are avid you know exercisers if they couldn't exercise for like the next two or three months at all how they feel about themselves and their body like obviously that's not a good thing right <laughs> for them right. And, and then their identity and then postpartum like people want to lose they're like okay I could kind of tolerate it while I was pregnant and you could tell I was pregnant, but now I'm not pregnant anymore, but I still low-key look pregnant and this is not acceptable. My body can't look like this. Um, and the thing is, is that a lot of people will go to extreme calorie restriction and over-exercising and now you're over-exercising in a time where your baby isn't sleeping, you're not sleeping, you may or may not be getting good, like super great nutrition because you're feeding at least one kid, maybe multiple. Um And a lot of those things that we know go into increasing the likelihood of strain and possibly increasing your likelihood of injury are way up. Um, And it's certainly not going to be good for your performance. And I think we don't do a good enough enough job of letting people know that that's going to be the case. So on one hand, we don't do a great job telling new parents like, hey, birthing parents, you are going to... Um, need this strength when you have your kid. And we also don't do a good enough job on the other side of being like, and this stuff takes time, right? There is le- There are legitimate tissue healing things that are occurring and that takes a certain amount of time and you, there's no way to fast track that. Um, and again, what are the risks and rewards on what happens if you get injured postpartumly when you're not just talking about whether or not you can do your deadlifts, but whether or not you can pick up your baby in the car seat? Um, so I just, it's a, it's a way more nuanced conversation than we typically talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's it's just so good because there's not a lot of, uh, there's not very good recommendations. It's kind of just left to be this vague interpretation. And then, you know, you, you go to the world of Google and God knows what that'll tell you. So then I feel like a lot of pregnant women are left just kind of questioning, like, what can I do? What can't I do? what will hurt me? What won't hurt me? And right. it's just, it's tough to see only because, you know, like you said, exercise is very good. And sometimes there is that stigma too, when you see a pregnant woman working out and people might actually be like, well, what is she doing? She's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it that sometimes that stigma does exist. So I just want to make sure that, you know, for anyone listening, like make sure you, you know that you can exercise while you're pregnant. It is very healthy to do so. Um, and forget what everybody thinks about you because they don't matter yeah. <laughs> their opinions don't you know need to validate what you're doing with your life but yeah, do your thing and I, I always like tell my patients you know I would never tell someone that you can't do something that makes you happy mm-hmm. so we can change that do something a little bit differently um if we we need to optimize that and make sure that you can still do that but it's like someone I want to say a woman had asked me like well do you want me to stop um redoing houses because she liked to do that when she had she had back pain or something. And I'm like, I would never ask you to not do that. Mm-hmm. I was like, you're probably not going to be swinging a sledgehammer tomorrow. But what, well, what is the point of seeing me? What, right, am, I, what exactly. am I adding to your life if I'm just going to tell you stop doing stop something? Doing that. Yeah. That's why you're coming here in the first place. So you exactly. can do your normal life. So like, yeah. But you just want to, back to that whole empowering thing. You just want to make sure that people know that, you know, everything is going to be okay and we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, there is definitely something that, the, that particular conversation around pregnancy and postpartum has some, been something that has developed in my practice over time um, because I do think it's important to be very empowering and figure out how to meet people where they are and get them doing what they want to do. 
and also be aware of and educate them about the risks. Because I think for a while I was only doing the fun part where I was like, no, you can do anything. And I wasn't doing a good enough job of being super clear about you can do anything. It's your body and it is ultimately your choice. You're going to do with it what you want. And that I love that for you. And also there are significant risks and you are, your body is by definition more vulnerable right now because of these physiological changes that are occurring. Um, so let's talk about what the risks are so that you can decide what risks you're willing to take on. Yeah. Pendulum. Right? So, so Shante always talks about, um, the pendulum swinging one to one side of the aisle or the other. And, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it has to be a balanced conversation. I feel like all we do as physical therapists are like manage expectations and help shape people's perspective or help them shape their own perspective, I should say. Right. And all of that validation. Totally. Absolutely. And all that to say that, again, you don't necessarily have to do internal pelvic floor work, but if you are treating people who could become pregnant, which by the way is a pretty large percentage of the population, you should probably know a thing or two as a provider about exercise and during pregnancy and postpartum and what the tissue healing things are. And if you're not, if that's not something you're willing to do, know who to refer to when that time comes. Exactly. Christina just wrapped it up with a bowstring there. I was going to say, that's awesome. And on that note, I want people to be able to reach out to you if they have questions or if they're looking to, you know, possibly seek some pelvic health treatment. So where can they find you? Sure. Instagram is a great place. Uh, Christina.Holland, K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A dot H-O-L-L-A-N-D. And then I also am reachable via email, although I'm not as good at it, but it's Christina, my first name at inclusivecarellc.com. Thank you so much for coming on. This was amazing. Thanks Um, for having me. It was really fun. Yeah. And thanks to everybody for listening. Please reach out to Christina if you have any questions. And uh, thanks again. And stay tuned for the part two or three. I know, right? (laughs) All right. As a postscript here following that episode, I did forget to ask, but Christina is very on top of the game and reminded me. Uh, So a new thing we're doing here is asking our guests what their favorite exercise or movement pattern is, uh, which is a very difficult question. Uh, So Christina, with that in mind, what is your favorite movement pattern or exercise? Kettlebell swings. And I like them. They're amazing for pelvic floor function, dysfunction and um, treatment because they inherently work with a lot of the breathing, especially if you do, you know, Russian kettlebell stuff. And so you get that whole core system firing really well and you don't ever have to think about doing a Kegel. Phenomenal. That was a phenomenal choice and explanation of why. That's how I remembered because I thought about it for 53 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And there it is. (laughs) That's well, great so answer, good. and thank you again oh, for coming thank on. Thank you. Christina. We appreciate you. <laughs>